0: I think we've ended up creating this artificial dependence upon professional psychotherapy to be everybody's solution when, you know, reality says our current iteration of humanity in its homo sapien form has been here for like 40,000 years and our profession's been around for like a hundred. So somehow we made it without us and I think we need to take ourselves a little less seriously. You must be some kind of therapist.
1: I am some kind of therapist and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I have invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you. So hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. All right, my guest today, I'm so excited to welcome Jake Wiskershen. He is a licensed marriage and family therapist and national certified counselor based in Nevada. And today we're gonna dive into a subject I know very little about, which is why I'm so excited to have Jake here, Um, the topic of guns and mental health. Now, as a left coast liberal, I have hardly ever seen a gun in my life. I've always been surrounded by people who are just completely opposed to guns. And my only training in guns has been really rudimentary safety planning when it comes to suicide prevention. So I'm so excited to have Jake here with a completely different set of skills and knowledge and perspective to share some wisdom on the topic of guns and mental health. Um, Jake is also a host of two podcasts and has a Whole lot of qualifications. So, Jake, will you please introduce yourself?
0: I appreciate it, Stephanie. Thank you. Uh, so, I do have two other podcasts. One is called Noggin Notes, that's uh, strictly mental health. And um, I'm very, very proud of that one because it started very strangely and organically from a guy who is originally from South Africa, uh, went to school in Singapore, lives in Cambodia now, but he was originally in China when he met one of my old fraternity brothers through the gaming industry there and they ended up moving to Cambodia together and talking about mental health stuff and Safiso is his name Safiso Rapinga and Safiso is very passionate about doing mental health stuff and in and in the orient broadly in asia there's not a lot of mental health discussions because the culture just doesn't hasn't historically entertained that so uh, he was looking around seeing a lot of need and met a guy from the UK named Tom and he and tom decided they would start a mental health app and lauren my fraternity brother got wind of this And he says you should talk to my my buddy jake back in the states he does this for a living so we jumped on a skype call back in like late 2016 tom sofiso and i and uh I gave them some pointers, and they said, "Ah, oh, that's great. Would you mind writing articles for the app?" And I said, "Yeah, you know, that's fine. I love writing, but you know, it's faster than writing is talking. Why don't we do a podcast?" And they said, "What's a podcast?" And I said, "I have no idea. I just know they exist." <laughs> so we launched this podcast that was uh, embedded in the app, and that became Noggin Notes. And the app uh, had to go by the wayside, unfortunately, because they're very expensive to uh, run apps. But hopefully in the future, that'll come back. But what happened over the, the course of the years is that uh, through his contacts in South Africa and in Cambodia, some other people got, gained interest. And now there are three Noggin Notes podcasts, one for Africa and one for Cambodia, and, and now, you know, and mine. So that's really cool. It's put me in touch with a lot of people across the globe. And then the other one is literally called Guns and Mental Health, and it's by an organization called Walk the Talk America. I'm, I'm very proud to be a part of it as well. And at our core, walk the talk america and you can check more out at wtta.org or walk the we're a, a suicide prevention organization and by extension we would connect in with mental health things of all sorts and so it was founded by gun owners uh people from the firearms industry who wanted to make improvements in the connection between firearms and mental health and i stumbled in uh circa 2019 because through doing Naga notes I happened to uh, find out about Walk Talk America from one of my friends who manages his mother's uh, retail store and range here in Reno called Reno Guns and Range. And he introduced me to WTTA. I reached out, connected with the founder, Mike Sodini, had him on Naga Notes, and we talked for quite some time and then uh, stayed on the phone long after the podcast, became very good friends, and we launched what is now uh, probably the biggest thing that we do with WTTA which is our firearms cultural competence courses so two sides of that coin one is we train clinicians practitioners like you and me on how to be culturally aware of what firearms culture is uh, use proper language not scare people off by being weird and judgmental and then uh, the flip side of that coin is to invite firearms owners into counseling so we demystify the process of what psychotherapy is and uh, they don't have a head full of misinformation about you know being uh, gun grabbers or you know taking their rights away just because they're struggling with something so it's been it's been a really cool journey um, in addition to that I own and operate a outpatient mental health counseling agency here in northern Nevada called Zephyr Wellness and I do uh, I do some YouTube videos and I um, I do a lot of outreach efforts and uh, there's there's a lot to, to say about that but um, I do I do wear a lot of hats in the community and those are probably the ones that are most relevant to the listening audience for right now, but we'll, we'll get into all that, I'm sure. So thanks thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I, I love the opportunity to share any of this stuff at any time because, I mean, it sounds a little, I don't know, paradoxical, but I want to keep people out of the counseling office. So the more we can get information out in the public to help people find out that they, they have usually the resources and tools they need to solve a lot of their own problems, it alleviates the burden on clinicians. And right now, we're we're faced with an overwhelming demand and a provider shortage nationally, certainly in Nevada and Oregon, I know. Um, so, you know, I, I, I welcome any opportunity to talk about this stuff. I wanna work myself out of a job.
1: Yeah, I think that is the mark of a mature healer is to understand that our job is to help people not need us anymore, right? So, mm-hmm. when I think about this topic that you've broached of cultural competence in guns and mental health, you bring up an important point that those two communities are often quite separate without a lot of overlap. Because when I think of a gun owner, I don't think of someone who goes to therapy. When I think of someone who goes to therapy, again, I think left coast liberal, bleeding heart, sensitive, empathetic, um, You know, maybe someone who tends to blame themselves, not with a lot of aggression, not with hobbies like shooting things. right? And when I think of a gun owner, I think You know, I think female, when I think of, like, the average therapy client who comes to see me, right, when I think of gun owner, I think male, I think rural, I think, um, you know, hardened and tough and maybe has depression but just experiences it more like an anger issue. So I think of those as being worlds that are so separate. So it seems like it's important to bring… People into the therapy office who wouldn't normally go there, which is part of the work you're doing, demystifying counseling and making counseling available to people who might feel like the profession is not a cultural match for them, but also getting people out of counseling. So helping them be able to solve their problems in their life and have other sources of support and wellness besides what it is that we do. So I I, I love that your work meets this really important intersection. And I'm excited to learn from you.
0: Yeah, that's, that's actually what we call the, the course is the, you know, at the intersection of guns and mental health. So uh, I'll talk a little bit about the course and some of its content. And then if people want to, they can go to the website, the, the WTTA.org website, and we have two of them uploaded. They're three hours a piece. Uh, they're good for continuing education credit in most uh, states if you, if you just contact your licensing board, because we cover suicide, we cover ethics, we cover cultural competency, and, um, and it's all applicable to the profession. Um, but, but basically what we want to do is we want to share that gun owners are not a monolithic culture. Uh, you, we often think, you know, white man in his fifties with a beard, you know, maybe covered in, uh, you know, camouflage and, uh, wears hats <laughs> a lot of the time, probably a trucker hat, you know, something like that. And <laughs> I, uh, I, have realized, uh, so I've been a lifelong gun owner, but I was never really into the community very much until I joined up with WTTA. and. My experience was that my family is full of cops. Uh, the firearm was a tool for the job, just like the radio or the, you know, the the car. And it, it just, we didn't do much. You know, we hunted from time to time, deer, uh, some birds every once in a while, but, but we didn't we didn't collect, we didn't decorate, we didn't swap them out and see what kind of barrels do different things in the gun or anything like that. It Just kind of stayed on the shelf and was used for dad's job. And then I joined up with this group and got a very strong awakening as to how diverse the culture really is. And it's every, every brand of, and stripe of diversity you can even imagine from economic to ethnic to religious to gender to, uh, I mean, everything. And, and I think to borrow one of our board members' analogies, uh, Rob Pincus is his name. He's, a, he's an internationally known firearms instructor he's been around for a long, long time. Uh, he analogizes it to car culture. So you got you got people who don't own cars. You got people who don't own guns. You got people who use cars just to go back and forth to work. You have people who use guns solely for a, a job, say, as a police officer or a, a military person. You got people who use them for personal defense, and that's it. Uh, then you got people who restore them. Decorate them, see, soup them up, and see how fast they can go. Uh, you know, the, the, the parallels are, are very striking. And I, I think that's really useful to try to create some semblance of uh, understanding and appreciation and, and competence, really, at the end. So that when these gun owners come into our clinics, into our offices, they're seeking help, um, we are more comfortable having a conversation out of curiosity rather than certainty. And we don't just stumble over our own tongues saying something like, uh, you know, do you have guns? What do you do with them? Are they locked up? Uh, like, we don't want to come off that way. Uh, we want to come off and say, you know, things like, uh, okay, so you're, you're struggling with anxiety. Let's do with your anxiety. And then, um, if the topic of firearms happens to come up, they say, uh, you know, I go shooting in the desert and, um, and it helps alleviate my, my, my stress. Right. I don't want them to think that I'm going to pick up some bat phone to the government and tattle on them because I can now, Conflate anxiety as a problem and gun as a problem, and want to like you know keep people safe. If you can't see the air quotes, if you're listening just on the audio, I put air quotes up there. Um, So I want to I want to try to to teach clinicians how to have a a reasonable, effective conversation about proper storage in time of crisis versus using that as a tool of effective symptom alleviation. Right. Um, One of the striking things that I had. Uh, the, the the good fortune to experience is at my agency, we host students, both undergrad and graduate who are going through their programs for whatever they're doing. And one of the students at one point actually came and said, Hey, uh, I was working with this kid, four years old, said he, he goes out shooting with his, with his dad. And I said, okay. So do I have to call CPS? I said, w- uh, help me understand why you would need to call CPS. And she says, well, I don't know, just, just guns and kids. I was like, well, is the, is the kid handling the gun? Well, I don't know. I didn't ask. Okay. Well, let's make sure we ask that. Um, but I I started to detect this, this sense of uncertainty and (laughs) I said, are you nervous because there's kids and guns together and you you don't know how that walks? And she goes, yeah. And she, and she burst into tears and she's like, I'm just so confused. I don't know what to do. I said, well, okay, that's fine. You know, take a breath. It's fine. But what stuck in my head was, holy cow, this person was going to call child protective services out of uh, just a place of ignorance and, and not knowing. And I think we, we tend to do that a lot. And I think we we want to try to broaden people's horizons as much as we can and say, you know, actually children do shoot guns and they do it quite responsibly and safely from time to time. So it was really important to, for me to take that, that torch, I guess, and carry it forward so that we don't end up inadvertently chasing people away from counseling. I, I led off by saying that WTTA is at its core of firearms, you know, uh, suicide prevention organization and, uh, throw some statistics out. The, the latest stats we have are that about 52% of all suicides are by firearm and approximately two thirds, about 66% of all firearm deaths are suicides. So knowing that, uh, and then knowing that, There's a Pew Research poll that came out in 2017, so it's a little bit dated now, and I I imagine the number's only gone up. It says that uh, 47% of Americans either own a gun or live with somebody who does. If that's nosed up since 2017, and certainly there was a a buying spree that happened during the the, the 2020 summer and all throughout the pandemic of uh, new firearm owners entering the market, we can reasonably say that one out of every two people are going to walk into our office whether we be primary care physicians or mental health practitioners or dentists or whoever we are, if half of our clientele base is going to be around guns, we have a responsibility and I, I would say an ethical compulsion to arm ourselves, <laughs> pun intended, with the knowledge to uh, make sure that these people are, are welcomed in and not um, you know, chased away out of judgmentalism. So to your point about the apparent image of what a counselor is what a clinician is versus what a gun owner is yes they have stood across this kind of self-imposed chasm for a really long time and what invariably happens is tragedy strikes you know it's a suicide it's a negligent discharge it's a school shooting it's a mass shooting it's something something that gets thrown around um, scares people Um, one side blames the other and nothing moves forward because the two sides aren't talking. And I hate the sides thing, but that's basically what it boils down to. So we're trying to be a bridge between those. And it's worked remarkably well so far, certainly with the gun community. They've been very receptive to what we have to offer. When I go out there and I say, hey, look at me, I'm a, you know, a middle-aged white dude who owns guns and I'm a therapist. They're like, what? Didn't know that could happen. The clinicians, the practitioners have been a little more slow to come around, at least in our profession. I know the medical profession's been very, very eager about this, but the the mental health practitioners have been a little slower, and I'm not quite sure why. I think it's just some some preconceived beliefs that they're not ready to let go of yet. But um, we're making some real head re- headway into the, into the firearms community, and that, that thrills me to no end because we're, we're helping people not just prevent death, but we're healing marriages and we're improving parenting, and uh, we're getting people more productive at work and at school, and it's really, really great. I, I love what we're doing.
1: I love what you're doing, too, and I'm reminded of some of my own humbling lessons that I've experienced in my career around cultural competence because, again, coming from that background of being a left-coast liberal, my experience in cultural competence was always about minority cultures and um, you know, people with sexually divergent practices and just more kind of fringe populations, and that's where I felt like I needed to become— more culturally competent, which is ironic because I think I was already above average cultural competence in French communities just because the person I am and the life that I live. But that's what I thought of as cultural competence for a long time. And then a few years ago, I got placed in a job in a conservative Christian uh, suburb of Portland um, that was kind of like more middle america than I was used to, right? Because I've lived in LA, Hawaii, Santa Cruz, Berkeley, Portland, Oregon, right? And then here I am outside of Portland in a town where, yeah, there's a lot more gun ownership, just a lot more like other parts of the country are. And I realized, oh, this is where I lack cultural competence. It might be considered mainstream to most like white American counselors, but I actually am going in with a lot of preconceived notions about conservatives, Christians, uh, you know, the the demographic that I was working with. And that story also reminds me of something I learned in college. I had a really brilliant anthropology teacher. And again, she was coming from that same like liberal, progressive background with some eccentric interests. She was an anthropologist early in her career and she was teaching a class one day. And a student came up to her and was like, I have a population I think you should study. Okay, what is it? Police. And she rea- she kind of scoffed. She was like, she, she noticed herself having this really biased reaction. And then as an anthropologist with some insight, she caught herself having that reaction. And she went, huh wow, I have a lot of preconceived notions about this group, and as an anthropologist, I'm supposed to be curious. Okay, maybe I should go and study them. She ended up studying the police for 20 years and writing a book on the LAPD and marrying a cop. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, she was a really interesting teacher. I mean, she'd also studied like tribes of Central and South America, too. I mean, so I think uh, yeah, a hallmark of maturity is is having the insight and humility to kind of recognize when you have a limiting belief or an area of ignorance where you've had a little hubris and and to get curious about that and explore that and grow. And for me, my curiosity and exploration and growth and development of cultural competence has been more in those those things that are traits of middle America and I would say gun ownership is one of those things that I know so little about. And I think a lot of fellow therapists do. And here in Portland, Oregon, and maybe some other places as well, I feel like the community of therapists is generally so busy trying to virtue signal to um, you know, the LGBTQ community and to like people who identify as anti-racist and all these groups. They're so busy trying to say, I'm here for you. No shame in whatever your background or practices are. That in the process, they're actually alienating people who might be moderate or conservative in their politics, who might have more kind of traditional values. And and then I worry about that population, right? Cuz there yep. if if there is a whole demographic or multiple demographics of people who feel like therapists don't get me, therapists are all like this or like that or therapists are advertising that they have these values that I don't resonate with, then those people aren't getting the help that they need and we as therapists are also not growing and our perspective is pretty skewed. This comes up for me too when I'm dealing with clients who have maybe family in a different part of the country that voted for someone or holds religious beliefs that are different from theirs. And I used to more kind of join my clients in validating their anger toward others who they perceive as having some kind of bigoted or uh, restricting beliefs. But as I've grown, I've ended up, you know, more like recommending uh, the work of Jonathan Haidt, you know, recommending that people learn about moral psychology so that you can learn where others are coming from and how people you don't understand uh, are not immoral necessarily. They have a different value system where their expression of morality is different from yours and is occurring in a different cultural context. So, I'm really excited that you're doing this work to kind of bridge those divides and help um help people be where they need to be and connect in, in some novel and needed ways.
0: That's a the the way you you trailed off there about, uh, meeting, you know, you're alluding to meeting people where they are by letting them be where they be. Right. And I would be remiss to, uh, you know, to, to miss mentioning my good friend and mentor, Christian Conti. And I try to crowbar his name into every, every, uh, opportunity I can, because he's been so impactful in my own life. He's, he's got a great book called walking through anger and what walking through anger is, um really is is a synopsis of his life's work and something he calls yield theory yield theory is meeting people where they are it's seeing through the outward behavioral presentations the belief systems the the ego structure that they have and seeing the the human being on the inside with all its depth and complexities and potential and that's been really really instrumental for those of us who followed Conti and his work. Uh, he was a professor at UNR at the University of Nevada where I went to school. And now he's back home where he's from in Pennsylvania doing great work with the Pennsylvania Prison System, the Department of Corrections, and training all their employees and working with inmates. What, what it does is it alleviates judgment. And the way that I implement that into my teaching and training is I I lay a foundation of emotional functioning Uh, that I get from a guy named Carol Izzard, who studied this stuff for like 50 years. And his book, The Psychology of Emotions, was one of the, I mean, it laid the foundation for emotional functioning in the realm of psychology. Um, he, He died a few years back, but his work is very important to our field. And that's actually what my emotional functioning videos are about. So if you go to like my company's website, ZephyrWellness.org, you just type in the search emotional functioning, you'd see the whole series of videos. So I lay that down and I say, all right, so if you want to learn where your judgments originate, um, notice what your emotions are about them. And if you you feel a defensiveness springing forward from your limbic system, that's an area that needs examination. And a lot of this is steeped in like Carl Jung. Uh, Jung talked a lot about how human beings are infinite in their capacity uh we're divine creatures and if you believe in the divine then there is no limit to the divine ipso facto there's no limit to what a human can do and that's that's for great and terrible so we want to be mindful of the terrible knowing that we're you know we could potentially fall into it if we're not paying attention to it and then aim for the for the uh the good stuff, right? Chase, chase down what we're, what we want to accomplish. And I think my job as a clinician is to help guide people out of whatever's got them stuck and into the Potential that they have now. Here's the rub, though. It's scary, and fear is one of those emotions that we're not particularly good at dealing with, because uh, broader American, you know, Western society doesn't teach this in any curriculum in any sort of you know competent way. We've got a little bit of social emotional learning starting to take root in some of the K twelve systems, but a great deal of that is not done very well. I think a lot of it's done by charlatans who just want to sell a curriculum to a school district, and it's 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 not done well. So to do it well means to teach fundamentals of neuroscience, teach what the limbic system's job is, which is to tell the brain what's happening in the environment. And then our cognitive zone, which is our frontal lobe, can do something about it. In order to get there, you have to know what the emotions are. And then you have to move through the the judgments and the, and the belief systems that maybe are keeping you stuck, quote unquote. Um, but to your point about demographics. Um, I'm purposely positioning my company now to go after those, uh, broader demographics in the market that previously, I think we, we've done a pretty good job of chasing away. When I say we, I mean, you know, professional therapists because of a lot of that virtue signaling that you mentioned, it's like, we're trying to chase down the, the minorities and make sure that they're, uh, safe, which is good. Um, uh, but in our zealous you know, pursuit of that, I think we've forgotten that. It, it has a counterbalance effect of, of being off-putting to people who are maybe not in those demographics and then think that we're all about that and only about that. And it's like, well, no, we're not. And, you know, if we're really meeting people where they are uh, individually on an individual basis, creating individualized treatment plans and not just some formulaic uh, workbook of, you know, worksheets or something, then we're going to see actual progress. And we're going to see actual healing and it'll be much more efficient and it'll go a lot faster. Um, one of the things too, that we're trying to do here, that's a little different, a little out of the box, I think traditionally, and you're a family therapist and you'll know this too, is that we try to, we try to pull the whole family in. And if there's an individual with an issue, say it's a, you know, one half of a couple relationship, we invite the, the other half in. We say, bring, bring your spouse in, bring your mate in, bring your partner in, because you're going to see me one hour a week. Maybe if, if we're really running pretty hot and heavy, uh, maybe every two weeks, but, The other 167 hours of the week, you're with some other people. And probably if you're in a pretty well-solidified domestic partnership of some sort, that's going to be your support structure. So I want that person in. Even if they just sit silently and observe the transaction, uh, they will end up being a a better accountability mate. They'll help nourish and grow. And if (laughs) if we're doing our jobs well, we foster, promote, and develop. An intimacy and a vulnerability in that couple relationship that then grows and becomes so much deeper and richer and healthier that we work ourselves out of a job, and that by extension goes down to the children. So we don't we we do we have it we don't do fix my kid clause in our uh, consent forms, uh, and it doesn't read like that, but it basically says you parents as the executives of your home are responsible for what goes on in your home. So we need to do as much work with you, if not more, than we do with your child. And, and I think somewhere along the way we lost that, and I don't know if it's because we are by nature just kind of you know skittish people, and we're worried that if somebody drops off the calendar, we're not going to replace them, you know, as if there's not enough hurt to go around or something, um, or what. But we, I think we've ended up creating this artificial dependence upon professional psychotherapy to be everybody's solution, when you know reality says our current iteration of humanity and it's homo sapien form has been here for like 40,000 years and our profession has been around for like a hundred. So somehow we made it without us. And I think we need to take ourselves a little less seriously when we're talking about this stuff and start, start pushing this stuff out so that it doesn't seem like we're hiding behind a curtain, pulling levers on, on our patients. Um, We were inviting them in to learn the same stuff you and I learned in graduate school, apply it in their own lives and create sustainability. That's that's what we want. That's we want a healthy society. I be I say this all the time. Um, I'd be happy doing literally any other work if if I, it means I'm working in a healthy community. I'll, I'll happily change Zephyr Wellness and it's you know rented office space for the next fifteen years on the lease <laughs> uh, into a coffee shop or a you know a, a brewery or a tap room or something. If if it means that uh, everybody around me is happy, you know. So um, that's that's what I want to do, and I I want to I want to encourage deeper faster, more effective counseling instead of just the symptom treatment that we see walk through the door. Um, I obviously have a lot to say about that, so I'll shut up there for a 2nd mm-hmm. let you follow mm-hmm. up.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you're talking about the, imp- the importance of relationships in well-being, and as you're saying, you and I are both licensed marriage and family therapists, and so a lot of our training is about how individual mental health occurs within a system that we're not isolated. Yeah. And so our role as therapists is to help restore proper psychosocial functioning. We, we know Correct. that the health of relationships is one of the biggest determiners of overall physical health and longevity. And that includes both your close relationships, you know, your family, loved ones, that 3am friend, as well as your community relationships, just that sense of do I feel like I belong and I'm safe when I walk into my grocery store or my post office, right? And we've lost a lot of the latter and maybe some of the former during the pandemic. And it's it's hard to properly estimate how much it's taken a toll on our well-being just to not have that daily sense of uh, chit-chat and coming and going in a community where you can see each other's faces and hear each other's voices. Um, so I agree. It's our job to make ourselves not needed anymore. And that, you know, part of how we get there is to do the work of helping people restore their relationships, whether that's in family therapy or an individual therapy. And sometimes it's temporarily taking on a social role for someone, right? So- the role that we play now, as you're saying, psychotherapy hasn't been around a long time, but it might be adjacent to uh, the role that priests or clergy might have played in a different time and place, or um, the role that consulting an elder or a certain type of family member— So. I think we, we have a role that has some things in common with organically occurring roles. And we can temporarily take on that role where someone might experience us as their best friend or as their parent or something like that. Our job is to be aware of what's happening in the relationship uh, to that transference and counter-transference and make sure it's being used productively um, rather than in a way that fosters too much dependence. So it's healing for some people to be able to depend on us, especially if they've never been able to depend on anyone. I've found that, you know, I've had clients who have very little trust in anyone because of what's happened to them. So to be able to trust me um, has been a really important part of the healing process. And then that becomes a template. Well, if you can trust me, maybe it's possible for you to trust some other people too. Um, But I've also had clients who kind of latched onto me where I ended up feeling like I was playing a role in their life that would best be played by an intimate partner, you know, mm-hmm. like an emotionally intimate role. And that continuing in therapy was almost a way of delaying or avoiding maybe divorcing an abusive spouse, because at least they had me to turn to. Yep. Right. So I've, I've kind of like kicked people out of therapy saying, I think that me filling this role in in your life that I've ended up filling is preventing you from making the changes that you would make if if someone weren't filling that place. And I want you to have a life that is so much richer than just having a person you like talking to once a week when the rest of your life is miserable.
0: I knew this would be a good podcast um, because even though we connected only recently over Twitter, I could tell by your posts that you thought that way. And that's really important for me because I'm seeing a lot of the opposite happening, not necessarily creating a, an artificial dependence, but symptom treatment in perpetuity is what I would say. So like the way that I conceptualize this is like uh, most of our diagnostic Uh, labels that we have anxiety depression obsessive compulsive disorder ADHD anything in the DSM that has a a, and for the listening audience is not familiar DSM stands for diagnostic and statistical manual and then the sub is of mental disorders it's basically the book we use to code things and diagnose people and I, I view those as symptoms I don't view those as problems problems are very often much deeper than that. And they don't have a code attached to it. And the codes get sent off to insurance so they can compensate us for the work that we do. And um, there's a whole other discussion we could have about that. But the idea is that the problem is is usually like, doesn't feel good about oneself, doesn't know where one is going in life, never learned how to function emotionally, never heard, learned attachments in a healthy way. Um, uh, and there's ways that you get to that through chron- chronic invalidation in childhood, trauma history, um, over intellectualization. I mean, lots of things, right? But those don't have labels to them. So what ends up happening is somebody walks in the office, you know, I got a drinking problem. You go, all right, cool. I got ways to deal with that. Um, but when we cure the drinking, invariably it's masked something else. So like depression pops up, then we cure the depression, then anxiety pops up and we end up playing therapeutic whack-a-mole and the person stays on the calendar because I'm not doing a good enough job sniffing out the root of these, uh, you know, leaves, so to speak of symptom presentation. So I want to, I want to deal with the the depth of where it originates and cause, you know, permanent systemic change in the individual, their environment, their system, their behavior choices, whatever it is. And a lot of times that's questioning worldview too, um, how they arrived at those, at those views and those beliefs and ideas. And, and I find that to be, you know, much more efficient and effective um, so, you know, if you're listening to this and you're a potential patient or client, we kind of tend to use those interchangeably. I, by the way, side note to that, I say patient because client, uh, patient has its roots in, uh, uh, Latin pati is, uh, suffer. So patient is one who suffers and, and I want to, I want to be identifying with the person who's suffering. I don't want to look at client as though it's just a financial transaction. Uh, but also I, I think we struggle for relevance in the medical community i want to put us back into this into the sphere of being part of the medical community so we're, we're taken seriously for reimbursement rates and that kind of thing but um if you're listening to this and you're considering therapy and you're just this is like your you're kind of your tangential way of touching counseling because you're not sure about it or whatever when you finally get in or if you're in now one thing i would say is if if your clinician is not doing what stephanie and i are talking about which is checking in with you, pointing out the the process of what's happening in the session by saying, hey, look, did you notice that you're having a healthy relationship with me? I wonder if you could maybe do that with your brother, you know, whatever it is. If they're not doing that for you, um, please, first of all, investigate it, see where that might be occurring. Um, but then if they're not doing it to your satisfaction, go ahead and fire them and find somebody else who will. Um, we work for you. Uh, we don't, you don't work for us. And, and I don't, I want to make sure that we're always mindful of that power differential because like you alluded like we do play a role, whether that role is, you know, shaman or wise man or what wise lady or whatever it is, mother nurturing person in the community, there, there is a power differential there. It's like, we wear the white coat and it doesn't matter what clothes we're wearing or what our post-nominal letters say, you're hiring us to help you. And if you're not being helped in the way that you need to be helped, um, kick us out. Now that all being said, I'm a little worried and I'm curious to flip this interview around. I'm curious your take on what's what I think is emerging in our community where there's this push for quote-unquote supportive therapy where it's like, "Oh, you know, you're just supposed to support the person, you're supposed to affirm them uh so apparently like in their misery." And like to me that that seems antithetical to the profession and also seems unethical in many ways. Uh, so, I, I want to hear your take on it, because I know what mine is, and, you know, I can mm. opine on a soapbox mm-hmm. for a while, but what are you thinking?
1: Collusion. Sounds like collusion. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... I mean, there's a part of me that wants to get real Freudian and like talk about like sucking at the eternal tit of the mother, like the dependence on this all oh, loving, yes. nurturing, you know, being this this projection onto the therapist that we should be not separate right, that we should right. just be the mother so that the ther- the client can return to an infantile state of dependence. That's the image that comes to mind, right? And collusion is one. this idea that, that the therapist is losing their boundaries and merging with the narrative and beliefs that the client is operating by, right? So the client is expecting us to be or do this or that, so then therefore we be or do this and that, right, without being a mm-hmm. separate self, without negotiating a relationship in which two separate entities with boundaries, wants, and needs come together, And negotiate their roles in relationship. And that's really how we teach people healthy relationship is by modeling having a healthy relationship, which includes both interdependence, but also some separation, right? Because we want our clients to be able to negotiate relationships with people in the world. We want them to be able to approach a job prospect or a romantic partner or any other situation in which the human relationship matters and be able to say, this is what I think I want with you. Does that sound good to you? Do you want that with me? Mm -hmm. And to be able to feel that out ongoingly rather than, this is what I want, give it to me. (laughs) You are now responsible for meeting our needs. So I think the idea of supportive therapy is influenced by those factors. Now, I recognize that it could be alienating some people through saying these things because, of course, therapy is supposed to be supportive. Yes, you should feel like your therapist is someone who supports you, and that's why you go to therapy is because you need some kind of support. But what I have a problem with is the idea that we let our clients define what that support should look like when they might not be in a position to do that. Just like a a child cannot define what good parenting should look like. In fact, oftentimes good parenting is going to be doing the exact opposite of what your child wants you to do. If that is giving them candy that they shouldn't have or staying up too late parenting is about boundaries. I'm not saying that as therapists, we're parents. I'm not trying to be patronizing. Our clients are often adults and we want to treat them as such and help them live as such. However, we have a responsibility as the professional in the room. You know, Similarly, I have a problem with the idea that a patient can go to a doctor with a self-diagnosis and an idea of what kind of treatment they need and tell the doctor what to do. Again, in that story. It's not the doctor's job to just do whatever the patient tells them to do. The doctor is a doctor for a reason. The doctor has knowledge the patient doesn't have. And even if the patient is themselves a doctor, you know we need an outside perspective on ourselves. It's really hard to self-diagnose and self-administer treatment. So our patients are coming to us because they need help and because they need something we don't have, which is an outside perspective and one that's informed by our clinical knowledge and uh, by our Relative objectivity, not absolute objectivity, but relative. relatively we are more objective than their friends or family or – and we're more specific than, you know, some advice guru or Instagram therapist, right? So I think we have a responsibility to maintain – a sense of differentiation from our clients and be aware of our countertransference, be aware of what it is that we're feeling toward them, whether we're feeling sucked into something or that something's being projected onto us that we feel a responsibility to enact in some way, and learn from that rather than acting on that. And so what does it mean to be supportive? This is something that can partially be defined by the patient in therapy, but it can also be defined by us and explored ideally between the client and therapist together, The idea that support should look a particular way, that it should look like always agreeing or just listening or just validating is likely coming from a place where the person doesn't actually know what support could be. So to give an example um, of something that didn't happen in therapy but happened on a group call I was part of recently. And one night a member of the group was going through something really challenging in her personal life that had to do with a friendship. And she brought this to us. Everyone was very understanding of what she was going through as she shared her side of the story, and she was obviously in a lot of distress, right? So when someone's in distress and their their vocal tone is elevated, that sound like they're crying, you know, you want to comfort them, right? And that's what everyone was doing because they were being good friends. Um, but at some point, she did share what she did in the relationship with the friend, and she shared that she said some certain words that I think would be alienating, right? And so... When it came my turn to speak, of course, I asked if it was okay to share a different perspective. And then I came in with that different voice, right? I'm not just here to comfort you and tell you that you're in the right here. I'm coming because I really want to help and I care about what you're going through. But also, if I were your friend and I heard you say this to me, as much as I had, from your perspective, done something really wrong, um, I would feel like my dignity was being threatened and like any further engagement with you would be um making a compromise to my basic dignity by allowing you to talk that way to me right i'm not seeing it from the perspective of what i did to deserve that i'm seeing it from the perspective of i can't talk to someone who will talk to me that way period right so yep. that's just an example in a different context outside of therapy of how sometimes you need a little bit of pushback right and similarly in therapy there are all kinds of times when we could coddle our clients by saying, oh, I'm so sorry that that person made you feel that way. And yeah, it's really understandable. That is part of our job, right? Because we do have to start with empathy oftentimes to meet a person where they're at, to de-escalate and to help them feel like this frustrated thing that's trying to express itself is being heard. But that's only part of it because if we want people to have healthy relationships and not just depend on us to comfort and soothe and validate them all the time, then they need to be able to see from other people's perspectives too. And they need to know that they can source their worth from more than just being soothed, that they can actually source their worth and their positive feelings about themselves through strength and growth and making amends and evolving. And those are also sources of comfort. In fact, it's much more deeply and sustainably comforting. To be able to stand on your own two feet, to have a solid sense of self, and to be able to navigate challenging situations independently, you get a lot more comfort from that in the long run than you get through having a shaky sense of self and relying on other people to comfort and soothe you.
0: Yeah, I think that that's uh, something that I'm seeing this uh, trend now where everything you just described is the opposite of what's popular uh for lack of a better descriptor and i think what's popular is to blame shift and shirk accountability and externalize the problem onto something else because it um it it's not as it's not as vulnerable right i don't have to i don't have to look in the mirror if i can just blame you for my my unpleasant feelings um and i think that that may have its roots in postmodernism where postmodernism by It's own existence, um, helps to challenge orthodoxy and get us out of, uh, pretty rigid worldviews. Uh, you question why things are, you know, where's the origin of this? Um, but then taken to its hilt, nothing is real. Nothing exists. Uh, all of everything is a construct of a construct and, um, I create my own reality. And that's very, very toxic because it leaves us without that anchor, without that foundation that you, you mentioned. And from there, we don't know where to go because we're not stable. And so we end up almost living in this house of mirrors where, uh, I don't, I don't have any, uh, perspective by which I can measure my own. Uh, integration into the society, my own value, my own contributions, my own, uh, progress or growth. It's just all dependent upon what's reflected back at me. And when I don't have to take responsibility for that, it's really easy to continue life in agony, rejecting help and con- continuing to complain. And that's actually a defense mechanism that's, uh, you know popular in our circles which is called help rejecting complaining and you see this with a lot of cluster b personality disorder types and that sort of thing so one of the things that we're trying to get back to is helping people create their individual senses of foundation where do you where do you anchor yourself and it doesn't matter where you draw it i mean it could be religious it doesn't have to be it could be uh, ethical uh, and that's where heights work comes in really handy too um and some of that you know like if you're if you're in our profession we have an ethical code where's the ethical code come from well it comes from our five ethical precepts and everything can be traced back to that and one of my favorite words in counseling is intentionality it's probably it's my favorite word for sure uh and i generalize that to life if i can be intentional if i can act with a spirit of purpose and design it puts me in charge of my decision making if i know why i do what i do then i don't I don't have to worry about anybody else's you know, approval necessarily because I've already factored it in. And I can trace that back ethically to you know, non-maleficence, beneficence, autonomy, justice, fidelity, and say, all right, this is why I'm acting the way that I do. And something I do with my students and my interns, for example, is say, you know, pretend that CNN cameras are on and pretend that at some point you're going to have to account for every decision you make in every interaction you have with every patient that you ever encounter if somebody asks you, why did you say those following words to the 17 year old boy? Uh, you, uh, you better be able to articulate a response. Um, and hopefully that response goes to something looking like a treatment plan. Cause these people don't walk in ailing, uh, and seeking our assistance. If they figured it all out, if they just want quote unquote support and that's all they want, it's like, well, why are you in my office? We still do operate under a medical umbrella and the medical umbrella says stated problem goal objectives to the goal and then interventions. If we leap right to interventions, we, we're gonna we're gonna run amok. So we want to make sure that our interventions are targeted, directed, time limited, hopefully, and intentional to achieve the goal. And the goal, hopefully, is something looking like you know uh, alleviation of distressing symptoms or something like that. And it doesn't matter what the symptom is. We want to get rid of it and help you re shore up your life uh, or shore it up for the first time, perhaps in some cases, if you've never had that sort of, you know, personal self efficacy. And our job is to guide you through that. And yes, support is part of that. Uh, And if we can point to that along the way and say, hey, look, see how I'm supporting you? Um, I know it's really hard because, you know, I look like dad to you and you never had a dad and you're bouncing around the foster system or whatever. Um, I'm not your dad. I will show you how it is to have a proper relationship with an adult male for example uh by setting boundaries teaching you some things knowing your own limits pushing past what you think are your limits etc cetera, etc cetera. then they go oh yeah okay now i'm aware and once you become aware you can no longer become unaware and they've grown hopefully that's that's the idea um, I, lo- I love what you just said that that's that's really awesome
1: i hope you've been enjoying this episode of you must be some kind of therapist podcast If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I've personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. And for me, it's hard to think in that way that you just described that is goal-oriented. I had to be trained to think that way Mm -hmm. um, because I am so ethereal in some ways. I'm I'm philosophical. I'm spiritual. I am artistic. I like to just explore ideas, right? So I had to learn to appreciate that approach as part of working with the medical model. And I think a lot of therapists haven't found the right balance for themselves of those two sides of the art and science of what it is that that we do as a profession. And so if, if one tends to lean more heavily into the open exploration and just the aesthetic fulfillment of exploring the psyche, then maybe bringing along some boundaries and clarity and directedness might help. And similarly, if one is too rigid or goal-directed and maybe not establishing enough rapport with your clients or mm-hmm. not catching things that are too abstract then maybe they need um you know to counterbalance in the opposite direction but for me I learned to work with the medical model at that same job I was telling you about that originally placed me in the one location now they did eventually place me in a different location and I had a different demographic but I had to work for this big company that did things by the books and they never object, they never outright said this, but I could tell that their objectives were make money and don't get sued. No. <laughs> so there's no. a lot of, no. here's how you need to work with the medical system and, you know, not do anything fraudulent diagnosis, treatment plan, golden thread from the assessment to what each session is looking like and how you're working towards your goals. And for me, it's still tough to tie together where I end up going in therapy with someone in a given session with that whole framework. But it is necessary and important in order to not conduct fraud and in order to make sure that we are still helping people move in a direction where they're not going to need us anymore. And we do oftentimes have to look at secondary gain. You saw me post on Twitter about this recently. We have to look at what are people getting out of maintaining their symptoms and what would they have to give up or what new problem would they have if their problems were to be solved. And oftentimes, yep, when there that, is that long-term a dependence on a therapist, when there is that long-term dependence, we have to look at that. You know, is the client attached yeah. to me? Is are they attached to um, having this identity about um, being a person who has this particular disorder?
0: Yeah, if, if you're a therapist listening to this, um, which I'm sure is probably a lot of your draw uh, for for listenership, uh, one thing that I've found very useful is so when somebody walks in first, my favorite question is (laughs) what brings you in today? And that's our starting point. Like what, what first prompted you to to come to the office and seek professional counseling and not try to solve it on your own. And then they say something and then usually that's not the thing. The thing is something else beneath the thing, right? (laughs) And as we build rapport and we work through that, um, we get deeper and deeper. So what I've gotten in the habit of doing is every four to five sessions, usually, I go, what brings you in today? And if they say something like, well, I made an appointment last time, I know we have to readjust and go back to what the purpose is, right? So we don't get off course. And and in my experience, as I've grown, I realized that I had to do that because I was guiding the sessions based maybe on the first thing they said, and that thing was no longer relevant. Or maybe I forgot. <laughs> Sometimes that happens too. Uh, we get so caught up in you know something else that i've deemed important i've lost my my patient's attention because they're like yeah i came in here for you know relationship issues with my adult grown children but now we're talking about this medical condition i have it's like you know that's that's worthwhile but is it the thing that we need to work on so i i get in the habit of asking that pretty frequently of like hey what brings you in today and um it helps us redirect back into what their goal is. Uh, that's what sets us apart from bartenders and hairstylists and manicurists and anybody else who has long conversations over a period of time with a with a person. Right? They're like you're you're paying me for my experience, education, and training, uh, not just to talk and explore the the psyche. That's fun, but I, I want to build into your your life relationships where you can do that with your best friends or your 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 brother-in-law or whatever it is. Um, I don't need to be that person. I want want to help you get to a place and then launch you out of the nest. Yes. That was a good thread you posted, by the way.
1: Thank you. And that being said, sometimes in order to address the presenting problem, we have to explore things that don't seem connected on the surface, much in the same way that if I were to go to a chiropractor with neck pain... Um, maybe they would address the neck pain directly in my neck, but maybe they would actually trace that down to what's to happening hips. in the lumbar region of my spine mm-hmm. because it's all connected, right? So that's part of our training in family systems is understanding how something over here can affect something over here and knowing how to work with the whole system.
0: And that's fun. Like, that's really fun work. I, I, a lot of what I do in, in therapy is… Teaching. I I love teaching, but it's not without a purpose. Like, I teach the emotional functioning stuff to lay the foundation so that I can cross reference back. I teach the psychodynamic circle, uh, Conti's interpretation of Jung's stuff, uh, because I like to talk about introjected beliefs and values that people tend to maybe defend that aren't even their own and aren't even useful anymore. Mm. So, I teach that stuff and I use the whiteboard and I, you know, I do fun interactive things but it's all with a purpose of like getting them somewhere. And that's somewhere that that goal mm-hmm. can change, but I want to, I want to at least document it so that we don't go rabbit trailing for weeks on end. It's like, Oh, see a Tuesday at 4 PM in perpetuity. Um, mm-hmm. and so there is a balance and, and we want to be mindful of that. And, and I don't want to come off sounding like everybody who comes in gets six sessions and they're done. It's like, no, if you're, you know, if you get a lifetime full of trauma, it's going to take a little longer work because you're just not used to Opening up, like that's that's a thing. Like we have to practice tolerating emotional distress, even in little tiny doses, before you can even build up to the bigger, deeper issues. So I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to say like I have a formulaic approach to everybody. That's not at all the case. Um, I want to encourage people to get probably deeper and more aggressive about their self exploration, and then if you're a clinician, get deeper and more aggressive about how you explore your your patient demographics as they come through and. And really, like what should be exhausting about counseling, if you're one of us, is the brain power it takes to remove yourself from the situation, look from a disinterested third party perspective at all the dynamics going on in the person's life, in your life, including hunger and fatigue and all sorts of things, the countertransference, the transference, and then in some reasonable way, articulate back to them some map forward, right? That's what should be exhausting. That's what should tire us out is the brain power that it takes to keep track of all that stuff. What should not be wearing us out is carrying other people's burdens for them. We should not be going home at the end of the night, agonizing over all the stories of, of woe and, and horror that we heard throughout the day. We should be setting good boundaries to your point, you know, oh, well, time's up. It's, you know, time for you to leave and the next person to come in. And then we leave work at work. Um, this, this idea of like, therapist burnout because the, the stories are too tough is not, it's a non-starter for me. That's somebody who never got taught good boundaries in college. Um, if you're burning out because you're overworked, that's a different thing, right? And there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of moral injury from corporate entities that are grinding people in the ground because they're putting dollars above care and all sorts of stuff. But um, really our exhaustion should come from having to be fully present, fully immersed, fully integrated with the other individuals in the room. Plural individuals, hopefully, and um, you know that just that takes it out of you if you're if you're doing good work. Yeah,
1: so. that was so well said, Jake. I I love what you just said. It was so clear. What should be exhausting us, <laughs> the actual work we're doing, if we're doing it well, is that complex mental work of tracking everything that's going on, learning from every piece of it, and like you say, creating a map. Right so that we're getting the lay of the land and we're helping our client get oriented and navigate, right? I often use uh, metaphors surrounding navigation of the wilderness as part Mm -hmm. of my practice. And so I I love that you brought that up. Um, So it's, I, I think about, you know, having a compass, knowing which way is your true North. What, what are your fundamental values? How do you want to feel and live your life? Okay. Those are your guiding principles. Now, if you know you're heading North, well, let's see what the terrain looks like because it might be that you actually have to go east to get around this mountain, or you might need to pack a snack or set up so here for the night. You know, um, and That's I would so add, uh, you you compared this idea of doing that work, which is our real job, to um, being emotionally burdened because you're you're troubled by other people's troubles, and and that is something that fre- people frequently. Ask me or worry about. You know, sometimes my clients will have the insight to say that they're worried about burdening me, um, or that it must be so hard for me to hear this. Or paradoxically, the on the other hand is. My problems aren't anything. You must talk to people who have it so much harder than me. I feel like I'm wasting your time. Mm-hmm. There's that too. And I agree with your clarification. Now, I would add the caveat that in certain settings, like um, inpatient or working with you know severe and persistent mental illness, that it can create that empathic drain because you are dealing with problems that are really hard to solve. But when we are in a setting yeah. where we're working with solvable problems and we're competent at our jobs, then- I think what we're really talking about is differentiation rather than collusion so that we have a separate sense of self from our clients and we're not just emotional sponges. Um, And also, it's about faith. And I don't mean that in a religious context, although anybody's particular religious beliefs could certainly apply. But it's about having faith that there's something greater than us, whether it's a higher power or whether we view it as being within the individual that we're working with. It's about having that humility that I don't have to take this on and I don't have to fix this all. I am working with a living, breathing human being who has just as much capacity for growth and change as I do and as anybody else does, and I just have a particular role to play here. Maybe it's a small one. Maybe it's a profound one. Maybe it's both small and profound, um, but I have a particular role to play in activating or uh, redirecting something that's going to help them, and they've got a long life ahead of them, unless you're working in geriatrics,
0: right? But <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, it's about yeah, faith true. and and respect for dignity, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely and and actually, many years ago, I wrote an article, a uh, very brief article about how uh, faith has a function in uh, battling anxiety specifically but also most mental illnesses. the idea that um, if you believe that there's something bigger, then you don't have to worry about the things you can't control anyway, and that's the the, the thumbnail sketch of it and so i I do ask, you know what is your spiritual affiliation as people come in? and for me it's useful because almost invariably the people who are struggling the most either have none and have never explored it or have been injured by religion and don't want to go back to it so that in and of itself again i go back to emotional functions like all right well what are you afraid of might happen in the future right and then we can work there and i think that the faith component is the belief in things unseen if you believe that you can be healthy and happy, even though you haven't necessarily seen that or had it modeled for you through your community or your family, then I can at least get you to entertain the idea that things can be different down the road. And that's particularly useful. I love your, I was like about to jump out of my skin with your geographic anal- uh, analogy, because there's something I use too about, you may have been on a path to go to a lake or something and you look up and you're in the middle of a forest and you're like, I don't know why I'm in this forest, but I'm definitely not on the path I wanted to be on. I'm certainly not near a lake. And with a map and a compass, which is sort of our role as guide, uh, GPS locator these days, uh, if you get a map and a compass, you look down and you go, all right, cool. I I wandered 20 miles off my path. And that seems like a long trek back. Well, here's the thing. With the proper guidance, you look down and you go, oh, there's another path out of the forest and I can rejoin the trail and it's only six miles. You're still in the middle of the damn forest. but you don't have to go back the same way you came and retry, retrace your steps. With illumination and insight, you can shorten that path. So, just because you're in the middle of the forest, you, you'd be there a little bit. didn't take you, you know, you didn't get there overnight. It's going to take a little longer in one night to get through it. But you can accelerate that, right? And, um, and get back to where you wanted to be. And so, the geographic analogy or illustration is, is brilliant. I love that. I'm glad that you do that too. I kind of felt like I was alone in that.
1: Oh that's so fun that we just discovered that together. Well, I always Spoken end up like exploring by the way. so many so many interesting directions when I have these conversations. Um and sometimes I don't even plan as much as we did today which was just picking one topic, but We have uh, explored some really interesting stuff, but we've also veered far off course, to use the navigation analogy, from the topic of guns and mental health specifically. And I do want to um, mine your knowledge on that topic. I know we talked about it some at the beginning, um, but to bring it back to that, I'm curious if you can share what are some myths or misconceptions that people have about guns and mental health that you can clear up for us?
0: I think the biggest one is just – I'll go back to the diversity of the community. Um, there's groups out there with whom we work at Walk the Talk America that you, you – know, random people probably wouldn't have ever guessed. Um, Pink Pistols is one. It's uh, women uh, and largely LGBT uh, folks uh, who are avid gun owners and are very active. There's Liberal Gun Owners and Liberal Gun Club, two completely different organizations who are very much liberal minded in the political sense and who love the second amendment, love firearms and are as geekish about it as any, you know, tactical person you might see on Instagram shooting things in the desert. Um, there are ethnic minority groups, um, headed by people like Edgar Antion from, uh, Colorado. He, he runs guns for everyone. Tony Simon, who uh, runs, um, the second is for everyone um he's a large black man who's very loving and compassionate and he's all about getting access to firearms for literally everyone um Maj Touré out of Philadelphia he founded Black Guns Matter um Collian Noir who's one of our board members a uh, very large following on the social medias um he's an attorney out of Houston a black man who is very well spoken in the community and um, Reaches out to as many people as he can. Argo J, uh, it's three A's. It's African American Association of uh, Gun Rights Owners. Ar- Argo is his like nickname. Argo J, he's out of Milwaukee. Um, Kevin Dixie from No Other Choice. Uh, he's he's now in Georgia, but he's from St. Louis. Another black man who's very outspoken. Jera Hutchins from Texas. Uh, she's she's big into the the women's movement, and then there's the DC project, which is all women and all 50 states, whose job is to um, work through legislative process to advocate for Second Amendment protection. And you, you meet these people, and they come from all different stripes and walks of life. Uh, some have disabilities. Some have um, you know medical discharges from the military. Uh, some are into psychedelic medicine. Um, some people are, you know, raised in trauma and, and like you just, every one of them has, has a story to tell. A lot of them we've interviewed on our podcast. So If you want to learn more about that, listen to the podcast, the guns and mental health stuff. And you just get a broad based perspective. Yehuda Reamer and you know, one of my very good friends is a, uh, he goes by the pew pew Jew online. He's an Orthodox Jew. And that's very interesting. <laughs> that's very interesting because uh, the Jewish community traditionally, uh, doesn't embrace firearms. And so he's, he's out there like this kind of outspoken Orthodox Jewish guy who's, um, you know, picked up the banner for, hey, you need to defend yourself. Uh, There's this phrase I was introduced to through the Jewish community, um, never again. And it's in reference to the Holocaust. And it's like if, if you know, the Jewish people are like, if it, if it really means never again, it means never again. It means we have to defend ourselves if, you know, people come knocking for us or whatever. So like the the diversity of the Jewish community, or, I'm sorry, the the firearms community is something that really I think people need to learn and understand all the way down to your random run-of-the-mill uh, housewife who carries concealed to protect her and her kids. Uh, you know, they may walk into your therapy office, and and if you're inadvertently spouting off about you know, Trump Republicans or something, you might have one sitting across from you just because they don't look, walk, talk, act like you think they should. Um, you could end up offending them and then inadvertently... Uh, causing lifelong harm to the profession too, because uh, they they may never want to come back, and then that's how we end up with people deteriorating into addiction and uh, suicide and so forth. I mean, one thing I want to talk about too is language change. We talk in terms of safety, gun safety, firearm safety, and it's like the firearms community thinks it's you know they're they're some of the safest people on the planet for a variety of reasons, and largely they are. But I think the term "safe" has gotten really watered down over the last couple of years. And it's like, stay home, stay safe. Get your vacs, stay safe. Mask up, stay safe. So that, but then also it's highly subjective. So what we're trying to advocate for is a change from safety to responsible. Responsible gun ownership, responsible storage, because responsibility has an undertone of personal accountability. Uh, safety can just come from the cosmos and, you know, whatever. Um, but if we say responsible gun ownership, we we as clinicians can, can then say, you know, we were working with the parents of a angsty teenager, and we say, you know, your teenager's suicidal or self-harming or whatever. Uh, what, what do you have in your home? Don't ask, do you have guns in your home? Don't leap right for that. Do you have anything in your home that the kid could have access to that could be potentially life-altering? And you go, yeah, we, we own guns. Okay, well, how do you store your guns? And then they say, well, you know… They're they're stored safely. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean that they're stashed under cushions all around the couch? It's like we're we're the safest family on the block. You know, if ISIS kicks in the door at 3 a.m., we're ready. <laughs> like, Yeah, but you've got an angsty teenager who has access to loaded firearms. Don't don't do that. Um, we can shift toward responsible and go, hey, is that is that the most responsible thing right now? Or should you maybe have some safes with some some combinations that the kid doesn't know? Um, that's a that's a language change that we want to in, invite people to undertake and, and embrace. So if you're talking to firearms owners, ask them how they store. Uh, get knowledgeable about locking devices, safes, um, and, and just be. Be competent again. Take take the class. Um, you know, Spitzy had a little certificate at the end. And if you want more, you can reach out. Those are the two big things I wanted to touch on: is language and um, and the diversity of the community. Feel free to ask more. I'm I'm not going anywhere.
1: Yeah, um, I like I like your suggestions about how we change our language and conceptualization around safety to responsibility. I agree that safety can. It's a lofty difficult to define and, and more external concept. And it's it's relative, especially in our current cultural climate with the wor- ways that the word safety is being used. Um, it's not something that can be clearly defined. And the risk in this cultural climate is that we're fostering an external locus of control, which you and I have um, chatted about before, right? Mm-hmm. So that- If I don't feel safe or I have a story that I'm not safe or the world's not safe, I'm going to put that on you. You need to do X, Y, and Z for me to feel safe. Now, there are certain times that that's absolutely true. Like, for instance, you need to stop wildly gesticulating and raising your voice at the cashier because it makes me feel like maybe you're about to punch the cashier and I'm just trying to check out with my groceries. like. That, yeah, that would be a situation where it's clear that I'm making a reasonable request for what someone else needs to do for me to feel safe. Um, not that I would make that request. Yes. I might protect myself in a different way. But uh, but safety can be vague and it can also be kind of an external concept. And, and responsibility is about what am I doing to help myself be safe in an, you know, an objective, measurable way or help my family or my home or whatever is within my domain to be safe by taking action. And taking action is really grounding. It's calming. Um, Oftentimes with anxiety, that's what we're looking for is what can we control? Um, So I love that. Um, So all of that you were sharing in response to my question about what are some myths and misconceptions about guns that you can clear up
0: for us? So I think uh, one, I was going to say one more, but maybe two more. One is that um, I think there's a misconception that firearms owners are all like nervous, paranoid people, especially the ones who carry on a daily basis uh it's like why are you wearing a gun you know how crazy are you that you think the world's so violent that you need to carry a gun and it's not it's not that it's uh it's analogized to a fire extinguisher in your home it's like i don't i don't just worry all day long that flames are gonna burst out from my electrical outlets if they do i want i want a fire extinguisher there and i get three or four fire extinguishers in my house uh, if i wear a gun in public um you're probably not going to know it because it's covered by a shirt, you know, or whatever. And, you know, the the news is full of bad things that happen to people. And what we don't hear about oftentimes is um, defensive gun use that prevents violence without the gun ever even leaving the holster. You know, all you got to do is, you know, raise your shirt and say, you know, back off. That's close enough, you know, in some sketchy part of town or whatever. And it's like, okay, cool. And you never hear about that. That doesn't make the news. So I think one misconception is that People who own firearms think that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and they need to like have you know all this armory of you know uh, guns and weapons and bullets and all that stuff. Yes, that's that may be true of some some certain people, but the vast overwhelming majority of the you know hundred million or so gun owners in America, it's probably like a hundred and ten million now, uh, is not that's not the case at all. Um, and I think the other. Uh, misconception is that the nra is somehow the voice of all gun owners it's actually very 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 insignificantly representative of of gun owners i think the top percentage of of membership that they had at one point was like they had five million members and that that may even be overblown and so if you take that five million and you lay it over the the hundred million five percent of gun owners are represented by the nra It's like, that's, that's not, that's not the people you want to necessarily be listening to when you're trying to draw an accurate portrayal of what a firearms owner looks like. So, you know, you hear a lot of the NRA is going to blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, a lot of us in the gun community aren't real big fans of the NRA because of a lot of the rhetoric that they've spewed over the years saying, you know, telling doctors to stay in their lanes and otherwise scaring people out of treatment too. So those are two big misconceptions is don't, don't necessarily think that, firearms owners all can be lumped into one big category either emotionally psychologically um, you know demographically they're not a monolith by any means so remain remain humble and curious is, is what I would say to to figure that stuff out find out what your what your person across from you sitting on the couch you know owns guns for you know it might be just one gun in a box that that got handed down from grandmother you know because she had it uh, given to her in the great war you know, or something like that. It's like gun owner. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. So, you know, that that's that's a big misconception, I think.
1: Thank you. That's really illuminating. I had no idea that the NRA only represents 5% of gun owners. It's a lot smaller um, these days
0: too. I'll tell you that what,
1: much. Hmm. So earlier you said gun owners are some of the safest people. Help me understand that.
0: They're so inundated with training, the, the rules of safety, that when you talk about firearm safety with a patient who's a gun owner, you're going to be talking past each other. You're going to ask if, if they're stored safely, and they're going to go, yep, yep, they're stored safely. And then it's like, if I'm an unknowing clinician, I just move on to the next topic. Um, if I'm a, a culturally competent clinician, I'm going to say, tell me more about that. Where are they? How are they stored? And and then you'll have a, a leg up, so to speak, with with credibility and rapport, too, because the your your patient is going to go, oh, they know enough to ask deeper questions. Right. So the they, the ears of the, the recipient may interpret that safety as like, yeah, we follow the rules every time we go to the range. It's like, well, that's not what I was asking. What I was asking is, is your angsty teenager have access or do the neighbor's kids have access when you're not at home and the teenager's hosting company for the video game tournament? Like that kind of thing. You know, do, do I know you trust your 16-year-old with uh, the rifles when you go hunting, uh, but where are the handguns? That kind of thing. So it, we want to be more precise um, and not insult the intelligence of the firearms owner who already believes him or herself to be safe, quote unquote. Um, we can presume that there's not a lot of reckless gun ownership going on and the, the community has gotten a lot better at calling itself out and holding itself accountable to things like leaving your firearm loaded and chambered in the vehicle while you run into the store. That's, that's foolish and irresponsible. Somebody smashes your window. Now they've got a, a gun that they can use to perpetrate crime. Uh, if you're going to leave your gun in your car, get a, get a, get a safe, get a biometric safe. Cable lock it to the to the seat. You know, um, that's not that that big of a deal. Um, the problem is that lately, in the last two years or so, estimates vary, and we don't really have an accurate calibration on this. But somewhere between eight and fifteen million new gun new gun owners, not guns sold, new gun owners entered the market, and that's a lot of people that we don't know. Uh, the motives behind why they purchased, we can reasonably assume that a lot of it's defense oriented based on, you know, defend the police and I might have to be my own first responder and that kind of thing. But um, the questions are, did they get responsibly trained? Did they get trained at all? Did they walk away from the gun store with a a safe? Let alone, I mean, did they even get a a, a holster? So we want to we want to ask those questions too. You know, did you recently become a gun owner? Or have you been a gun owner your whole life? You know, what what's your what's your level of understanding? And there's a lot of people out there who, um, you know, made purchases based on fear, and that fear may be well justified, but they never got training because ranges were closed or ammunition was in short supply, and ammunition is very expensive. And it's nice to sit back and say, well, if you can afford a gun, you should be able to afford the locking mechanism to keep it from. Unauthorized access, which is how we would define responsible storage, is preventing unauthorized access. Um, but not everybody has those means, and I'm not going to have the same conversation with uh, the the single mother of four from the inner city who just purchased a firearm and she's nervous about it, as the military veteran who's got a whole library of firearms. Uh, so we want to be mindful of that too, and not presume certain things about you know, the meanings of words, for example.
1: Thank you for that. So when it comes to guns and mental health, obviously one major topic that we all need to be well-versed in is the safety and suicide prevention piece, which you were just acknowledging. Um, what are some other things that might not occur to someone like me or someone who's not familiar with guns or not familiar with mental health? Um, about where guns and mental health intersect. For example, are there any mental health benefits to gun ownership or gun-related hobbies? For example,
0: yeah, a lot of people use them for that exact purpose. They're uh, protective me- mechanisms. Um, you know, we, we might prescribe somebody struggling with a certain disorder uh, homework to go. You know, take a walk or uh, go to the gym or change their diet. You know, something that's non psychotherapeutic but um, is more Physical in nature. Well, assigning somebody to continue doing their good protective hobbies is probably on you know in order. And if you don't know what those hobbies are because you've failed to ask the right question or you didn't create enough rapport for your your patient to say, "Yeah, I really like shooting guns," um, prescribe that. Right? It can it can be protective. It can be advantageous. It can be therapeutic in nature. Um, and for those who have never fired a gun before it's powerful man like it'll it's i've i've done enough of these classes now with with people who have never shot and then they go out and shoot for the first time and they go wow that was that was not at all like i expected they're off often trembling and sweating and and then they come away going i can't wait to do it again and that that adrenaline rush that that release of of cortisol can be just as advantageous as uh, signing somebody to the gym and if you're dealing, I keep going back to military, you know, military veterans often have injuries. They're not always psychosomatic injuries or psych- psychological injuries. They're, you know, knee injuries from jumping out of airplanes or shoulder injuries from hump and freight or whatever it is. And they don't get to go play softball anymore. Um, my body's too broken down. I mean, you know, if you meet me in person, I look like I'm built like a linebacker. But my, my joints are, are, are corroded and you know, like the lifetime of playing sports at 43 years old I can't do it anymore um so shooting takes an, an adequate place for that especially target shooting when you're trying to get precise it gives a sense of control it gives a sense of competition uh so it can absolutely be therapeutic if you if you're dealing with a gun owner they enjoy shooting for whatever they do um prescribe it to them I think that's a it's a phenomenal way to help uh achieve somebody's goals, but also gives them some symptom alleviation, and it creates rapport. It's like, well, my therapist told me to go shoot more. <laughs> Sorry, hun, I got to go buy more ammo. <laughs> like, um, it's it's not the worst thing in the world, you know. There's there's also stories about uh, Mike Mike Sodini, who's the founder of Walk Talk America, tells his stories, and I don't want to tell him without his you know without his insight and his his touch. But uh, there's people who say, you know, if I had the gun around, I wouldn't be here. And then there's people who say, if I had, if I didn't have my gun around, I wouldn't be here. So we want to be real judicious about, uh, pulling the lever on a red flag law. For example, certain people can't have the gun around if they're, if they're in crisis and we want to encourage them to find safe storage for that. You know, send it to a, send it to a neighbor. Not a lot of states these days allow that you got to go through background check. There's transfer laws. And I, I have a whole presentation on that too. Um, So, what are some creative ways that we can get firearms out of the house until the crisis is over Um, some some retail stores will keep them some ranges will keep them sometimes law enforcement will keep them but you know i understand that the trepidation behind somebody wanting to call the cops on themselves there's ways that if you're concerned uh you can contact a loved one you don't have to to take the whole gun you could take uh, an actionable component from the gun something like the bolt you know or the firing pin uh, and then neither one of you become felons because you didn't give your guns to a person without a background check. And then for those who are, you know, going through some, some instability and they go, I'll tell you what, it, you know, I may be flirting with suicidal ideation. And if I don't have my guns, I'm definitely going to take my own life. That has, ha- that is a real conversation that I have had. And, uh, I, I think the people who craft the, the red flag laws, for example, if people aren't familiar with that, it's basically a protection order. Like we have extended protection orders, temporary protection orders for so all sorts of things. This is a protection order that removes firearms from the home. You know, a, a judge can issue it. Deputies come knock on the door. Hey, we're here to keep you safe. Take your guns, whatever. Imagine how that goes down. It's it's not it's not comfortable for anybody involved. But even if it goes well and goes smoothly, the end result could be well. Now I'm Truly without identity because I'm a, I'm a former Marine who the U.S. government made the gun my identity in combat, you know, whatever. And I, I'm now out um, dealing with whatever I'm dealing with. I've lost my wife in a divorce, lost half custody of the kids, uh, I've got a drinking problem, about to lose my job. And somebody calls in a red flag law that they, they took away the guy's only hobby. Now what do you got? You got a more suicidal person than you had before. So we want to be very, very judicious about uh, just reaching for the the low hanging fruit of convenience and saying, well, just get the guns out of the home. You won't be suicidal anymore. It's like, well, maybe you made the problem worse. So that's, that's something to be mindful of as well. Um, so can, can guns be therapeutic? Can they be advantageous? Absolutely. Can they be a, a harm and a detriment? Yep. That too. We just want to be individualized with our care. And honestly, I shouldn't be reaching for that as my first line of defense anyway. If somebody's that dysregulated, I want to seek to get them in a higher level of care, not go take their property.
1: Thank you. That's really illuminating. And I don't often think of much of what you've said, partly because I am a highly sensitive, squeamish person, and just the thought of a gun kind of freaks me out. <laughs> like, it's just not for my sensibilities oh. to get that close to something that powerful, but... Also when I when I try to empathize with what you're saying I I can imagine like you're saying that sense of control and the adrenaline rush of feeling powerful and in charge of pointing your aim pulling the trigger and maybe nearing your mark I mean most people know on some level that it feels good to, you know, shoot a basket and make yeah. it or win a round of air hockey, you know, even if you're like me and you're not into sports and you're not a competitive person. Uh, but people who are more sporty or more competitive can relate sure. a lot more than I can. But we all know that that kind of hit of dopamine and that feeling of pride and confidence that takes over when you're able to, to hit the mark mm-hmm. on something. And so from there I can empathize. It's understandable how – if that's what someone enjoys doing, that 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 could really help with with stress or anxiety, help them feel like they're in control, giving them an outlet. You know, assuming that you're just talking about shooting targets or um, perhaps hunting, if that's what a person does, um, which I can imagine that hunting wouldn't just be about the gun, it would also be about the connection with nature Mm -hmm. and the primal force and you know, feeding yourself and your family, things like that. There's probably a lot more to hunting, and I'm sure you have whole episodes on that. We don't need to get into that right now. But I hear what you're saying, that it is a hobby that has a particular role in certain people's lives, and that we in the mental health field have a responsibility to try to understand that. And I am trying to understand it right now, just by relating in the ways that I that I can relate. And I really hear what you're saying. That on the one hand, guns are deadly weapons that are used in half of all suicides, and that are used in all kinds of um, shootings, and that that matters. But also, they play a role in people feeling. Able to defend and protect themselves, uh, which, like you're saying, might actually de-escalate conflicts and solve problems. Sometimes, um, that there is a lot of safety and responsibility training around firearm use, and that it can be a meaningful pastime for people—a way to um, gain, regain a sense of control, um, get out their energy, maybe uh, connect with their loved ones. For people who, you know, enjoy that kind of thing as a family. Um, so I'm, I'm learning from you about the roles that it plays.
0: Yeah, there's clubs and teams and, uh, you know, and all sorts of uh, camaraderies associated with it too. It's the, the idea of somebody going and shooting by themselves in the desert is rare. I mean, it's very, very rare. Usually you're going out with mm. groups of people and um, talking and enjoying life. And I mean, it's, it's a, it's a social bond for sure. Um, you know, I would invite, I would invite you f- for sure. Cause you're the one on my screen, but anybody else listening, on our website at Walk the Talk America, there's a there's a little 30-minute um, documentary that was done on us about a year ago, March, April-ish of 21. Uh, um, and it's it's done by a gal named Connie Ray, W-R-A-Y is her last name. She's got a YouTube channel called The Next Stage, and what she does is she does little featurettes on people who are doing interesting, cool things or have you know come through uh, stranger uh, know, uh, triumph of circumstances. And so they did a little feature on us. And uh, her story is that she is the mother of a daughter who is a veteran who took her own life with a firearm. And ever since that moment, she has hated guns. I mean, she never was gun familiar anyway, but hated them, wanted nothing to do with them, didn't like them, blamed the gun. And um, she she allowed herself to be vulnerable enough to to go out with us and get an experience of shooting in the desert. And it's a very, very powerful, very moving documentary. It's about, like I said, it's about 30 minutes long. And you can look it up on YouTube or go to our website. And I I think that that creates a pretty cool perspective for people who have never seen such a thing or been around it before to to watch somebody else go through those um, stages of learning and fear and then, Pushing through that that wave of emotion to the other side—it's it's really cool. It's in, they, they did a very good job of of you know making you know, producing it. So, and I'm in it, you know, so that, that's always an added bonus.
1: Wow, nice. That sounds like a great resource. So, I feel like some of the last few minutes of our conversations have not been exactly an answer to this question, but I, but I feel like they're kind of a response to the unasked question of what would you tell non-gun owners or what would you tell therapists to help us understand gun owners and i also want to turn that question around and ask you what would you tell gun owners to help them better understand non-gun owners and how to help them understand uh therapists and we in the mental health profession
0: um it's gonna sound a little self-aggrandizing but um Listen, listen to the podcast. Listen to the uh, Guns Mental Health podcasts. We've got about 50 of them now. For clinicians, take the, take the three-hour course. You can do it at your own pace. You can pause it whatever uh, on the website. That'll help a great deal. WTTA wants to be an organization that it doesn't matter if you're completely anti-gun or you're you're gun neutral or you're pro-gun, where people can go, you know what, I got my beliefs and I can get behind what they're doing. Um, that's, that's the point. Like we, we don't, we're not politically active. We're, we, we don't push for legislation. Um, we just want to save lives. And we believe that the way to do that is through education and training. So, so we, that's our angle. We want to be a place where people can come to regardless of their belief. And so far it seems to have worked. We've, we've done talks and appearances on all sorts of, um, platforms and, and events and, and, fervently anti-gun people have even said, you know, like, I I don't, I don't want anything to do with guns, uh, but I can support what you guys are doing. And then that's cool. Like that's, that's the, that's the point, um, for the gun owners, just please understand that I don't have some bad phone to the government that I can pick up and, you know, (laughs) tattle on you and have the police can show up at your door to take your stuff. That's that's not that's not what clinical practice is about. And whatever wherever you got the idea that that's the case, um, please accept my invitation to re-examine that. Um, there are certainly judgmental people in our profession even though our profession is supposed to be about non-judgment and empathy and being warm and welcoming and being lifelong learners. You're always going to get some cross section of the demographic that doesn't espouse that. You know, and that's just the way it is. But there are those of us out there who are, you know, by and large, the most of us who work in this profession are non-judgmental. We are warm and welcoming, and we're not going to look askance at you just because we're ignorant. Most of us are going to be curious and humble, and we're going to help guide you through. So please don't let that be a barrier to care. If you're struggling, um, you know, feel free to reach out to to us too. WTTA. Um, we want to build a, a database of clinicians who are you know, gun neutral or gun friendly. So you can, you can go, okay, I, I know I can trust that person, right? If it, if it gets the barrier out of the way, then that's just the same as saying, you know, I'm an LGBT ally, right? That's, that's a checkbox you can put on your profile. Um, so I'd like, I'd like for, for you guys to reach out to us. I'm, I'm accessible, you know, Zephyr wellness.org info at Zephyr is So you can email and, and I'm happy to answer any questions I do. You know, I, I take calls and, you know, I do zooms strangers all the time uh, just to help walk them through, find a, an appropriate clinician in their area, you know, that kind of stuff. So um, it's not as spooky as you may think. Um, a lot of conservatives tend to be religious too, and that religion tends to be Christian. And And a lot of fundamental Christians um, have been taught over the years that psychotherapy is something of the occult and not to be trusted. And that's not true at all. I uh, found that my spiritual faith and my psychology go hand in glove. I can make both work in the same world. So uh, that's not something to be scared of either. I'm not going to wave some magic wand over you and you're going to be possessed by something. It's it's not a thing.
1: Thank you so much, Jake. So just to review, um, you were saying that you can be reached through ZephyrWellness.org, info at ZephyrWellness.org. Walk the Talk America, you were saying, is WTTA.org. And you also have these two podcasts. Uh, So you've got Guns and Mental Health and Noggin Notes. Um, Are there any other places uh, people can find you or did we cover it?
0: Twitter. (laughs) Twitter at Jake Wisk. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's a convenient short handle.
0: It it goes back to the days of AOL when my dad uh, signed me up for an email and he just put Jake Wisk in like 1996 or
1: something. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you Thanks. so much. This has been really enlightening. I had a great time talking with you.
0: I appreciate the platform and the, and the opportunity. And I, I do really appreciate your work and the, and the voice that you have in social media. I think it's encouraging. I think it's reasonable and balanced. And I think we need more of that. So keep doing what you're doing. It's it's, it's worthwhile.
1: Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Nguyen, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at some You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I am some therapist doesn't mean I am your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body. Get outside and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.